Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. This is Mike Fader on the Turning Point here on PRN.FM, and uh, we're here every Monday at 4 p.m. There are podcasts available uh, after the show, and um, as I've mentioned before, if you want to get in touch with me or you hear anything on this show that you would like to respond to or... If you think there's something interesting enough here to refer to somebody else, please do so. The way to get in touch with me is to, you could send out smoke signals from the roof of your apartment. You could, uh, I don't know, (coughs) you could try to find out where I live and you could show up and knock on my door, but I don't encourage that. Probably the best way would be uh, in the modern world, and for all the sake of privacy for all of us, and decorum, would be to... um, 
go to my website, Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R, F-I-L-E-S dot com, Fader Files. And there, when you're there at the website, virtually, <laughs> you, can't act, you can't actually go to my website because it's not a real place. It exists in cyberspace, whatever that is. But go there. Go there. Uh, some part of you needs to go to the website and um, sign up for my mailing list. And that way you'll... Uh, get all sorts of information and uh, essays that I write, and you'll be able to see other things that I do when you go to my website, photography principally, um, articles that I write that you can respond to. But you can also contact me. If you want to get in touch with me, best go to the website, and you can contact me by email through the website. I am not on Twitter. I tried it once, but uh, too modern for my old head. Couldn't, couldn't deal with it. Uh, for various reasons. So that's how you do it. And uh, today, if uh, everything works out according to plan, <clears throat> in roughly 25 minutes or so, we'll be talking to Greg Pallast. I think a lot of you know who Greg Pallast is. Uh, investigative reporter, uh, author, and uh, sleuth who tracks down uh, with his... Um, with his brave staff, uh, the um, the nefarious deeds of politicians and uh, billionaires, uh, and how they affect the rest of our lives, <clears throat> and he reports on these things. Um, a very uh, fascinating fellow. So he's going to be here, probably in about twenty five minutes, hopefully, to talk about um, voter purging and how it's a national threat to, uh, I think you all remember, a national threat to who we theoretically choose to be president, uh, whether our choice is really um, diverted, whether our uh, votes are even counted. Uh, forget about the whole political process, superdelegates and uh, the money involved. That's one thing. But whether or not your vote is even counted, is it one person, one vote, or is it one person, no vote? So he's been talking about that, especially we had an incident uh, in, the in New York here when we had our primary last week where uh, approximately 120,000 votes were not counted. They were purged from the election rolls. And this is a complicated issue, and he sees this as a bad sort of signal for what might happen nationally. So he's here to talk about that um, later on. Right now, <clears throat> I wanted uh, a couple of years ago in New York City, there was a police officer, and um, this is all in the context of um, the last uh, few years. Not that this is only the last few years it's happened. It's happened forever in the United States, but the last few years where everybody is organizing and it's becoming big, bigger and bigger news and more cases are being brought by the Justice Department. The idea of police officers, generally white police officers, uh, most of the police officers in this country are white um, shooting, uh, an unarmed, shooting and killing, in this case, an unarmed black man, but shooting um, unarmed black people, generally men, and uh, getting away with murder in a lot of cases. And now, since, um, since it's been brought to the public so much, and since it is such a, a large issue, uh, more and more police officers are being held to account. They're being suspended immediately. They are being uh, prosecuted, charged with uh, attempted murder or murder, um, and um, being uh, kicked off the, the police force. So more and more this is happening. <clears throat> and we had it 
a case something like this a couple of years ago in, in 2014 in New York City in one of our uh, housing projects here. And um, an officer, a Chinese-American officer named Peter Liang, Liang <coughs> shot and killed uh, a black man in the hallway of a housing project. And that's just a simple recitation of the, uh, of the facts that happened, shot and killed. <clears throat> what happened was he was on night patrol, Officer Liang was on night patrol, and there are patrols that go through these housing projects. These housing projects, uh, which started building all the way back in the 30s and uh, built up until the mid-60s or the late 60s, uh, were originally intended for middle-income and then lower-income families. The idea was um, to clear congested neighborhoods and even slums, knock them down. This is all under the control of a man named Robert Moses, who personally sort of managed by power and influence and corruption to uh, change the entire city of New York and wanted to make even more changes until people uh, started opposing him and he started losing power. So uh, these housing projects started out to be middle-income projects, and I know a couple of people who grew up and who resided when they were kids. Um, they, they live in other kinds of apartments now and other houses. But they grew up in the housing projects. Uh, one friend of mine grew up in a housing project, a middle-income project on the upper... Uh, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, but not the fancy Upper East Side, obviously. It was a place that was built over near the East River. And um, another friend of mine grew up in the Bronx. Uh, he said, there were all these people, would, one of my friends, uh, they would all be about my age. And one of them grew up in uh, housing projects in the Bronx. They were originally intended uh, to get people out of poor neighborhoods, and these poor neighborhoods, uh, a lot of them were knocked down by this guy, Robert Moses, who was employed by the city and the state. And um, parks were built, uh, highways were built, uh, throughways, things like that, uh, bridges, tunnels. And um, the idea was, uh, aside from exercising his own power by Robert Moses, the idea was to alleviate the problem of ghettos and slums. But it really didn't. It really didn't. What happened was, over the decades, for various complex reasons, um, <clears throat> and you can imagine what middle income might have meant once. I mean, uh, what is middle income now? But over the decades, these housing projects, and some of them are very, very large, very tall, very wide, very huge buildings. Uh, some of them have 500 apartments. Some of them 1,000 apartments. Um, some of them are, uh, are uh, you know, uh, chain, sort of like, you know, built together in uh, areas where there are parks surrounding them. Um, and they became kind of high-rise ghettos on their own, high-rise slums. And um, it got to be over a couple of decades that by the 50s and 60s, a lot of these places that were built, brand new buildings, clean, you know, uh, supposedly to rescue people from the... Um, from the, the, the awful life of the slums and the, the beat-up old buildings and the roaches and the rats and the danger and the, the crowded streets and the crime, uh, became the same thing. They just, they just turned into the same thing. They became high-rise and, in some cases, low-rise ghettos, slums, with uh, infestations and with uh, you know, crime and all sorts of other danger. 
um, the uh, and, and middle income was once, I suppose, a whole lot of a whole different thing. Is there any middle class anymore? What is middle income now? Is middle income fifty four thousand? I read that the average American income for a family is fifty four thousand dollars. Is that middle income? I guess it is. But most of the people who live in housing projects in New York City now are poor. Almost everybody who lives in a housing project is poor, even people who live in what were originally intended to be middle-income projects. And the um, bulk of them are, because of complicated American reasons and racism being at the bottom of it, are black or Latino. And um, these places are dangerous places. They're dangerous places. The New York City Housing Authority does not maintain these projects very well. Either there's not enough money, they don't care, uh, there's bribes, who knows why. But the New York City Housing Authority, which is in charge of maintaining these places, uh, doesn't maintain them very well. So elevators frequently don't work, so people have to take the stairs. Uh, homeless people live in the stairs. It's like something uh, out of a futuristic movie, only it's not, it's like Blade Runner, only it's not futuristic. It's happening now, it's been happening for a couple of decades. I've been in these projects when I worked in the probation department, worked in the welfare department, and um, uh, visited a couple of friends that I had when I, when I was, uh, you know, when they lived there. Um, the, so homeless people uh, have taken up uh, residence in the stairways. The stairways are often dark and very dark because <clears throat> the bulbs are not replaced by the housing authority, the maintenance workers, or sometimes the people who live there want it to be dark. The homeless people want it to be dark and because they're not the only ones that live there. It's not just the homeless who are just looking for a place to get out of the cold or the heat and the rain and uh, you know have a place to be indoors. It's um, criminals, it's junkies, it's muggers, it's rapists. And a lot of these housing projects are some of the most dangerous places in New York City right now. In fact, uh, they probably are. There's one uh, in Brooklyn, which is where this police officer, who I started talking about originally, shot and killed uh, uh, a man in the hallway. And you can't see what you're doing there. It's really dangerous. And they have regular night patrols. Um, usually, I think they go in pairs, and they're in constant contact. But things aren't maintained. Like I say, the lights are out. Uh, the stairways are full of broken glass. They're dangerous. There are homeless people. There are uh, junkies. There are people there who will kill you for a dime. Uh, there are there are there are rough places to go, and the security cameras don't get uh, don't get repaired or used that much either. So this man, this ex-officer, Peter Liang, who had been on the police force for a while, he's, he's young, I think he's in his early to mid-20s, uh, a little while, and he had a, a spotless record. He had never gotten into trouble, never any abuse claims against him, never um, any extraneous extra violence used in arrests. Um, this was his career, right? He joined this, maybe he always wanted to be a cop. And he was on night patrol, and people patrolled, the uh, cops patrolled the stairways to try to keep them at least temporarily clear of the worst people who live on these stairways. And, um, but it is an alternative universe there, one you don't want to get involved in. And I don't know the details. I wasn't following the case, so I hadn't read all of his testimony or the testimony of other people, um, <clears throat> perhaps. And his gun was out. I, I guess it's a... Uh, housing police rule, or it's New York City Police Department rule, that if you're patrolling these places and they're dark and they're dangerous, your gun can be out and in your hand. And he said uh, that he 
thought he saw something or accidentally it was, I don't remember his testimony, his finger tightened on the trigger, a bullet went off, you know, a bullet was fired, and ricocheted off a wall, and actually um, he shot, the ricochet sh uh, hit somebody right through the heart. He was shot right through the heart, a black man named Akai Gurley, uh, G-U-R-L-E-Y. His, uh, uh, his girlfriend was with him at the time, but she wasn't right with him. I think she was a few steps behind him or in the hallway coming down to, you know, to like in, a, in the lobby of one of the floors, uh, in the hallway, one of the floors coming down to see him. And he died almost uh, instantly. Um, he lasted for a little while, but then he died. And this was, once again, uh, by people, you know, by a lot of black people who were sick to death of being shot by, quote-unquote, white police officers. And is he a white police officer? This is part of the mix of New York City, right? You get, like, you know, 20 different kinds of people in any given situation. But it's mostly black and Latino people who live in these projects. And although a lot of the police officers in New York City, the police department is, I would say, uh, pretty well compared to other places, certainly compared to places out in, the, out in the West or the Midwest or down South, is pretty well integrated compared to these other places. Um, you know, police officers, there's many black and Latino police officers in New York City. Um, hold on one second. Um, we had a little noise outside. I'm trying to get it to be a little quieter. Um, okay. So um, the gun went off. I don't remember the testimony. Uh, he thought he saw something, and he, he accidentally shot, or he shot, but he missed. And it was just his bad luck, and especially the very bad luck of Mr. Gurley here, the guy who got shot, that, um, the, you know, that he died. And this happened two years ago. Why it took so long? He was sentenced just the other day. He was sentenced last week. And it's been going on for two years, this case. Uh, the, um, the jury uh, heard his case, and this past January, they found him guilty of manslaughter and um, I think illegal use of a weapon. Let's see. I don't know if I have it here. Yeah. Um, he was found guilty and, uh, of, let's see can't really see it here. Anyhow, the jury found him guilty of manslaughter. They didn't believe his story that he, you know, that it was an accident. They think that he uh, shot irresponsibly. And uh, manslaughter is a very serious felony, right? And um, so uh, why it took two years? Well, it's a complicated case. There's lots of politics involved, right? Uh, the police department is involved and all kinds of investigative agencies, federal, state, local, Various parts of the police department investigated this, and they had to issue their own reports. Um, there's, you know, the courts are jammed up in New York City, maybe more than any place else, so it's hard to even get a case on the calendar. Uh, lots of politics involved here, you know, whether he's just one more of these, uh, you know, bigoted white policemen shooting, um, uh, you know, black, uh, black people, especially black men all over the country, uh, which they've been doing since uh, the dawn of America, right? But um, uh, here, one, um, one of the paragraphs in this story, uh, he is uh, Peter Lang, a former New York City police officer. Well, the final part of the story was the, the judge, who is also uh, Asian American, which makes it even more interesting, right? He, he heard the jury out, he heard the jury's uh, verdict in January, and it came time for sentencing last week. <clears throat> and the jury um, recommended jail time for him. Now, he's a police officer, and he killed somebody, right? 
you think he's got to go to jail. But um, uh, the, um, the district attorney of Brooklyn, who is black, and I think he may be the first black district attorney of Brooklyn, I'm not really sure, who when he was, um, when he became prosecutor, district attorney of Brooklyn, he uh, promised that uh, he was going to clamp down on this kind of violence. You know, this kind of routine violence has been going on forever in Brooklyn uh, from the police to black people. So it gave me more and more complicated. But he looked into the case, and he himself recommended um, that uh, the, um, the police officer, um, you know, uh, be given leniency, that he possibly shouldn't be accused of a manslaughter, that probably uh, he shouldn't even serve jail time. Um, and this made people very angry. So there's so much politics involved. It took two years for the uh, case to finally get heard after the incident. And uh, the sentence came down. And it was, um, it was jail time. The jury decided that he needed jail time. And the man killed the guy. And the police officer, you know, was at the very least irresponsible. And maybe he shouldn't be a police officer. And the gun, even though he said it went off by accident or he wasn't sure exactly what happened or he thought he saw uh, a movement, but that's not a reason to shoot, right? You don't know whether somebody's armed or not. I mean, even though it's a dangerous, scary place, and most people who are in the hallways, um, or often people, I should say, often people in these hallways uh, are dangerous. But like I say, the place is not maintained. The elevators don't work right. And a lot of times, residents who are just plain innocent, regular people going about their business, whatever it is, have to climb up and down the stairs. And they're in danger from these people. And uh, they can be mistaken for uh, by the cops who are you know uh, on edge to put it mildly by somebody who might be dangerous so it's a complicated situation anyway the judge took it upon himself at the sentencing last week to reduce uh, the sentence reduce the severity of the sentence I didn't know a judge could do that I thought it was up to the jury to decide what the sentence is uh, since they're given alternatives you know by the court and by the prosecutor <clears throat> but he reduced it and said uh, that there was no um, there was no indication here that uh, let's see uh, um, let's see um, Mr. Lang you know the police officer stood and apologized to um, Ms. Butler the girlfriend of the man he killed accidentally he said apologizing for having killed a man they loved the, uh, the whole family Mr. Gurley's whole family was sitting there in court. And he said, the shot was accidental. My life is forever changed. And he's been nothing but ashamed of himself. The man is really feeling guilty. His life is ruined. Uh, he's never going to be a cop. Who knows what he's going to be now? And his own life might be in danger from what happened. And um, the, uh, the man who was shot, his whole family was sitting right behind the guy. And he turned and apologized to them. Uh, it was at this point that Justice Chun... Uh, announced that he was going to reduce the manslaughter verdict, or he reduced the verdict so the sentence could be less, saying there was no evidence. Can a judge set aside a verdict of a jury? Does that seem right? I guess that happens once in a while. Saying there was no evidence that Mr. Liang was even aware of Mr. Gurley's presence in the stairway. So the gun went off accidentally, I guess. This was not an intentional act, the judge said. This was a criminally negligent act. As such, I find incarceration not necessary. So you can imagine, people got really, really, uh, the family was outraged. And um, obviously, Officer Liang was relieved because a cop going to jail 
sometimes be as good as a death sentence. I mean, who knows what would happen to him? If a cop winds up, uh, you know, that this guy wound up in a jail, uh, his life probably wouldn't wor be worth very much. He's got to do 800 hours of community service, uh, which seems right, and he's on five years probation. And, um, but his life as he knows it is ruined. Uh, wherever he goes in New York, the only place, the only way he could save himself, I think, is to, um, is to relocate somewhere. So uh, his girlfriend, uh, the man who was shot, Mr. Gurley's girlfriend, said, um, uh, Melissa Butler, who was with him when he died, told Mr. Liang in court that even today she was still in pain, because it happened two years ago, and needed the solace of justice. You took a piece of me. You took uh, a piece of my heart. She needed justice. So what is justice in this case? Could you be a judge? <laughs> I don't know if I could be a judge. I mean, everything is involved here. He's got to balance all this stuff. He's got to, he's got to examine the facts. The jury's got to examine the facts. The judge has to examine the facts. Uh, you've got to know all about it. And when I was a probation officer, this is what I did, pre-sentencing report. I would interview people who had committed crimes, and it was partially my recommendation to the judge whether or not this person needed to be taken off the streets, how long he should be put in jail, or whether he should be given probation because he didn't know what he was doing, because he was stupid, because it was an accident, uh, no matter how egregious the offense was. And, uh, but the judge has to balance all this. And on top of that, there are politics. You have no idea, you know, I mean, what the politics could be underneath. Or you do have some idea. We all have some idea. Who knows what pressures might have been brought on this judge? You don't ever know because this is a high-profile case. <clears throat> and the lawyer, the defense lawyer for ex-officer ex -officer now, Liang, said that he, uh, he, said, uh, he feels terrible about what happened, and so does his client, but he doesn't think that his, um, that his client uh, should be punished any more than that. And then he did not fit into the pattern of a typical bigoted white policeman uh, shooting an unarmed or, uh, you know, an unarmed or a helpless uh, black man as it happens, as it has happened forever in this country and as it happens for decades. So, but justice, what is justice? The girlfriend wanted justice. The police officer was hoping for justice. Um, and what is justice? Uh, uh, I looked in the Merriam-Webster dictionary. The quality, there's various, you know, definitions. One is the maintenance or administration of what is just, especially by the impartial adjustment of conflicting claims or the assignment of merited rewards or punishments. And um, the other one is conformity to truth, fact, or reason. Well, this was a very blurry, strange case where you couldn't figure out exactly what the truth, fact, or reason was. And lastly, justice, and maybe most importantly, justice is the quality of being just impartial or fair? Uh, to what degree is mercy involved? To what degree is, uh, is taking the background of the officer involved, his record? Um, but a man was killed. Imagine his family. Imagine how his family felt. An innocent man. Uh, we don't know what he was like, this guy, but uh, to, he may have been an extremely decent man. His life was just starting. I think he was 21 years old. Uh, he, he had his girlfriend. He had his family. Uh, they loved him. They brought him up. They cared for him. And bang, in a second, he's dead. Should the police officer not go to jail for this? 
why was this guy even a police officer if he was so skittish and his gun was not controlled and goes, and goes off by accident? What kind of training did he have? Can you imagine? I mean, how do you, how do you decide? And this is, this is what's on a judge's head sometimes and maybe more than sometimes, maybe often. What is just? What is fair? There's no way of knowing. There's no way of knowing. But uh, somebody has got to make a decision. The gavel's got to come down, and he's got to decide. So now we end. And as soon as uh, the people left the court, there were several hundred protesters on either side saying, you know, good, they let him go. He should be let go. He wasn't really guilty of a, of a, of a, of a you know, planned in advance. He's not an evil man. He didn't plan to kill this guy. He didn't intend to kill this guy. His life is ruined already. He's going to have to give back to society, so let him out of jail, and he could be killed in jail. And on the other side were uh, a lot of black people. Uh, these were mostly Chinese people who were glad he was released, Chinese Americans. And, and a lot of black people on the other side uh, saying that, um, <clears throat> that uh, he belongs in jail. He killed uh, yet another white cop, white, quote-unquote, killed a black man and belongs in jail. Justice. Where is justice in this case? I don't know. I know a lot of people were hoping he did get off, but a lot of people weren't. But the judge took over and he pronounced justice. But what is justice? Well, we'll be back in a little bit with our guests. back. This is Mike Fader, and we have with us on the line Greg Pallast. Hey, Greg. Hey, how you doing, brother? Okay, what's new? Uh, there was something called an election in Brooklyn. A, pri- uh, a primary uh, election, yeah. Yeah, you could call it that. Um, but what was happening uh, uh, before the election in Brooklyn alone, 125,000 voters uh, were purged from the voter roll. Purged, you know, it's like someone took a pill and and dump the voters out. Um, this, uh, and that's equal, by the way, 125,000 is equal to about half of the number of voters who actually did get to vote. So you had a massive, a massive blockade of voters. And now, you might, this is not about whether the election was stolen from Bernie. This is about how the election is going to be stolen in 2016. All right, so there's, uh, there's national implications of this local. Uh, this is like a flare going up to show that the, what, what army is on the march to destroy uh, what voting rights people have. You know what? It, my mistake, but let me introduce you a little bit to people, all right? A little bit. In case they don't know. Okay. Uh, Greg Pallast is uh, an investigative reporter. And uh, his uh, news-breaking stories have appeared on BBC TV, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, among other media outlets. 
And uh, you can always uh, read his reports at Greg Palast, G-R-E-G-P-A-L-A-S-T dot com. And uh, he is an author, has written um, New York Times bestsellers, Billionaires and Ballot Bandits, appropriate here, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, and Armed Madhouse, and the highly acclaimed Vulture's Picnic, about billionaires picking us all clean. And um, he is best known, as far as investigating reporting, uh, for uncovering Catherine Harris, you'll remember her, uh, purge of black voters, speaking of purging voters, from Florida's voter rolls in 2000, and currently working on a new documentary about that. Um, so um, um, to continue, um, all these voters were purged, and it was an extremely high level uh, uh, compared to anything in the past, right? Yeah, in fact, actually, there'd been hardly any purges in Brooklyn or throughout New York. Uh, in the last couple of years. Now, what, what is this purging of voters to begin with? What, what's that all about? What do we mean by purging voters? Why are we it's erasing people from the voter rolls? Why are we doing that? Well, it's, uh, the, the main excuse used around the country is um, to prevent voter fraud. In other words, so if someone makes sure that, that if you uh, move from uh, New York to Schenectady, um, that you don't send another, um, uh, you know, send in an absentee ballot, say, into Brooklyn, mm-hmm. or, uh, or uh, you know, uh, drive down uh, to Brooklyn uh, to vote a second time, mm-hmm. or that you don't, you know, you don't vote to show up at the polling place dead, um, or um, break out of jail uh, to vote, because you can't vote in New York if you are incarcerated. By the way, uh, most states, when you get out of prison, when you finish your sentence, you do get to vote. That's mm-hmm. a number. But anyway, so the idea is that illegal dead voters, this prevents voter fraud. Now, how many, do you know how many people have been convicted of voter fraud in New York in the last five years? <laughs> um, yeah, um, I could guess maybe, what, uh, 100? 50? There haven't been 100 convicted in 100 years. <laughs> there were none. <laughs> two? Uh, so two? It's not something people, people don't go, because, you know, you go to, it, it's very easy to catch someone <laughs> if they voted twice, let me tell right. you. And, or, or if they vote if they're dead, it's really easy to catch them, though they're hard to arrest. Uh, but if you can, uh, you go to, the, it's a federal crime and a state crime. So you go to prison for five years, uh, and there's no way out of it. Um, you go to prison for at least five years. But across the country, so people don't do it. So people don't do it. Right. So why are we then? Um, you know, you were just talking about this horrible case. How do you balance justice? Well, this is an easy balance. Why are you removing people to prevent a crime that doesn't exist? Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the equivalent of um, say saying, well, you know, um, if there's a, a lot of black people committing crimes, we'll just you know put them in jail all now in advance, and that's that. I, I don't don't tell Donald Trump I suggested it, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, this is okay. So now the the other the the more benign thing is that they, as they say, they they um, have to clean up the records. You know, I mean, you got a lot of old. You really do have people who have died, but that's easy to find because the social uh, security system sends the social security numbers out. They become public. It's easy to find out if someone is dead. Believe it or not, and if they walk into the polling booth. There's, you can ask them several questions to make sure they aren't dead. But, uh, but the, um, yeah. the truth is, I mean, but now the question becomes, normally, here there are a lot of people said this could have been the, 
you know, uh, the way that the election was stolen from uh, Bernie in um, in New York. I, I'm going to be straight up. I can't tell yet. I'm an investigative reporter, and I don't have enough info. I've been yeah, talking you... to, to Neil Rosenstein, of the, uh, uh, who's the chief voting rights attorney at, uh, at NYPIRG, the New York Public Interest Research Group. He's the top mm-hmm. brain on this stuff in New York, and he says, you know, we don't know yet who, who was banked by this. Uh, but it was horrendous, and it's run by these voting systems nationwide, not just New York, are run by political hacks. I know, because I was involved with the Kings County, that's the, uh, Brooklyn, in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. uh, the Kings County Democratic Party many, many years ago. I now have escaped to Los Angeles, but, uh, before I was an investigative reporter, I worked, uh, I ran the State Tech, uh, Science and Technology Commission, and, because uh, <laughs> of the political appointment, I was told to go down to Brooklyn and start removing, you know, challenging and removing voters from the voter rolls. I kid you not, that's mm-hmm. part of the Kings County Democratic operation. Um, most of my investigations, though, uh, well, let, let's put it this way. Here, who gets purged? It, if it's random, if they just, you know, right. stop random dead people from voting, if they stop random people from voting twice, if they say, okay, this guy's, uh, you know, if they stop random prisoners from breaking out and voting, um, then it wouldn't matter because it would all even out, you know. Mm-hmm. Bernie people, uh, you know, right. Trump people, whatever. But it's anything but even. According to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission, which did a pretty darn good study of this, Philip Klinkner, a professor who's expert at this, found that your chance of having your vote spoiled, purged, removed, not counted in some way is about 900% higher if you're black than you're white. Mm-hmm. So it, this is what, and it, this is what I call uh, lynching by laptop. Um, mm-hmm. Throughout the nation, and New York is probably the most benign in the nation, uh, one of the more benign on, in the nation on this. It's, it's not honest, it's just that, it, that the steel tends to be pretty even all over the place. Um, but throughout the country, especially in swing states like Ohio, where I was just at, in the... Um, in, uh, North Carolina, the other big swing state, Virginia, probably Florida, um, these states, the purging of voter rolls basically is a, is a brilliant way to target black voters and prevent them from voting. In which case, what we're saying is, and I remember, was it was Charles Blackwell, who was the Secretary of State in Ohio? Um, Ken, uh, Ken Blackwell, Ken Blackwell or, yeah. he changed his name from White Sick, but okay. Uh, Ken Blackwell <laughs> and, um, was the uh, Secretary of State of Ohio. He was also the chairman of the George Bush re-election campaign. While he's in charge of the vote in yeah. Ohio, he's, he's head of, the, uh, of Bush's re-election campaign. As Catherine Harris, back right. in 2000, was right. chairwoman of the Bush for President campaign in Florida, while she was in charge of, of counting the vote and determining the rules. Yeah. I guess uh, conflict of interest is not illegal. It's just unethical, but who cares anymore? But uh, so, so uh, obviously to target black voters, since most black voters vote Democratic, uh, yeah. are you saying that the election commissions or the states involved here in the most egregious ways are Republican controlled? Or is it something that yes. Democrats I do mean, in different places? Uh, the answer is yes and yes. Mm-hmm. You have most of the big of the big purges right now, uh, especially because they're racially biased, 
are conducted by Republicans, not necessarily because they're rednecks who don't like black folk or non-rednecks, white necks, whatever, who don't like black folk. Uh, they don't like the color of their vote. And, and by the way, my, uh, and then, but then, yes, Democrats do knock out um, do go after voters and Persian. By the way, that is illegal when you target um, people of uh, of, an, of, uh, of any race. Mm-hmm. The purge. It, it's called the Voting Rights Act, which, by the way, may have been gutted, sliced, damaged, and amputated and castrated, but it's still alive. So it's still a, a violation of the Voting Rights Act to target black folk. And by the way, that is one thing that the Brooklyn Machine was very good at. Um, and when, when Democrats go after voters and illegally purge voters from the voter rolls, that is, wrongly purge voters mm-hmm. from the voter rolls, they go after minorities, too. Because remember, that, as you saw on last Tuesday, the um, uh, Democrats hold firing squads in circles. Almost all the purging and attacks on voters are done against other Democrats. I think some of the worst cases of vote suppression in the United States occurred, uh, occurs in New Mexico, where, um, where um, Hispanic Democrats um, basically block other Hispanic Democrats from voting. It's the, uh, it's the rich Hispanic Democrats like Bill Richardson mm-hmm. who are scared to death that uh, poor uh, Chicanos will vote because they'd never vote for Bill Richardson. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the, the Republican, uh, excuse me, Democratic his, uh, Hispanic Secretary of State was charged with a felony crime of of trying to uh, uh, muck with the voter rolls. So uh, the um, <clears throat> we're speaking to Greg Pallas, if you just tuned in, and Greg Pallas, I'm sure most of you know who he is, an investigative reporter, author, and um, he's got this new documentary is on um, the best of the book, the best democracy money camp can buy a tale of billionaires and ballot bandits, right? Yeah, what it is, it's a, it's a dual two-side story. It's first the story of how they're going to steal 2016. It's my investigation, which I basically, it, it's the thread, I'm, I'm actually working for Rolling Stone right now. Mm-hmm. And it's the investigation I'm doing for Rolling Stone, and I've been doing for The Guardian and for BBC Television, Al Jazeera, until Al Jazeera went under. Right. And, um, it is the story, first and foremost, of, of how they're going to steal 2016. That is how they're going to steal um, a couple million votes, and, I'll, and I break it down. And the second is, who's funding this type of, you know, shoplifting votes not cheap, generally. Mm-hmm. And who's funding it? Who are they? How do they make their money? And why do they need to buy a Congress and a White House? It's not always obvious. Now... For well, I mean, example, I mean, uh, yeah. Well, but they've been renting it for a long time yeah, with an well, option to buy. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And 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 again, both parties are guilty here. But right now, obviously, it's a great advantage to the GOP. Let's put it this way: in blunt terms, there, there ain't enough white guys to um, to elect Donald Trump mm-hmm. or any Republican in a presidential election when you have a massive, massive minority vote. And so they've come up with, uh, there's 10 ways that they rip off your vote. Purging the voter rolls illegally is, is one, or wrongly, is mm-hmm. one. 
that's what Catherine Harris did back in 2000, calling thousands of people, of black men, criminals. Mm-hmm. In Florida, once you've co- committed a felony crime, you can't vote ever, uh, and you basically lose your citizenship. And But the thing is, she knocked off 56,000 black people before the election of Florida in 2000. Not one. I'm the only... No American journalist asked for the list. I got my hands on the list of these so-called felon voters, and not one, not one was actually a felon voter. But it's easy to accuse black people of, um, of having a criminal record. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And no one defended them. By the way, the Democratic Party would not defend them in the least. It didn't happen. And 56,000 black people lost their vote, and George Bush became president of the United States by 537 votes. That's purging. There are nine other tricks. The latest one is just sick, brilliant amazing it's called interstate cross check <laughs> and what's brilliant about it as i'll explain is it not only goes after black voters it goes after hispanic voters and the new democratic demographic the fastest rising voter block in america asian americans and the asian americans vote 74% democratic so yeah. Well, what is this called again? Inter. It's, it's called interstate crossing. Here's how it works. It was set up by this guy, Chris Kobach. It's run in 29 Republican-controlled states. What they do is um, the Republican secretaries of state compare rolls of, of voter rolls, who voted in each state. And for example, and this is a real example. If Maria Hernandez. Mm-hmm. voted in, uh, well, she did vote in Georgia, and Maria Hernandez also voted in Virginia. They say, aha, Maria Hernandez has voted twice, which is a crime. So we're going to remove her name from the voter rolls, that is, in both Virginia and Georgia. And who's now, in charge of doing the investigating, uh, investigating about who actually these people may be? Who's in charge of this? is absolutely zero, nothing, nada investigation. The people that conduct the purge are these partisan GOP secretaries of state. Now, in the case of Maria Hernandez, and again, this is a true example, uh, Maria, or the one is in Georgia is Maria Christina Hernandez, mm-hmm. right? And the one in Virginia is Maria Carlota Hernandez. Now, they're saying that that's the same person. Apparently, they just do not, you know, they don't under, they um, have heard, but they do not believe that Maria Hernandez happens to be a common name. Mm-hmm. But here's the, here's the trick. Why would they do this? The answer is that here's the people who are, who've been knocked out. James Brown, John Jackson, mm-hmm. Maria Hernandez, you know. Right. Uh, you're getting the idea, Jose yeah. Rodriguez, uh, and um, we had a Mr. Sung Park, and I have him on camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's only in the Korean community, as they told me, that there's basically four names. You know, Park, Ho, Kim, Lee. That's about it. Mm-hmm. And so this um, this becomes a massive attack on the new democratic uh, demographic, the Asian Americans, on um, 
obviously Hispanic Americans and uh, African Americans. Uh, very scary stuff. I mean, this is clearly the way. Obviously, this is how the election was stolen for George Bush down in Florida, and these swing states are mm-hmm. extremely important. Right, um, and and you saw it. And again, you were right about Blackwell in Ohio in two thousand four. There is zero question that the election was stolen from John Kerry because it was it came down to one state, as it always does, mm-hmm. Ohio. It comes down to basically it's four states, Ohio, Virginia, Florida, North Carolina. That's everyone else can stay home, basically. Mm-hmm. There's four states. Well, it, and, it, and in Ohio, they stole it in four. And even John Kerry, uh, who read, who, um, there was someone who asked him if he read my book, and he said yes, and, and that I was right about the theft of the election. He does now agree that the election was stolen from him, but the guy who asked him the question was then tasered. Remember the kid who was tasered? Yeah. He's holding up my book to carry and said, have you read Greg Palace's book? He said, why did you concede if you, won, if you won the election? And, and Kerry didn't hear him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he said, yeah, I read Palace's book. It's great. I mean, uh, and meanwhile, they're tasering the kid for asking the question. Well, why did he concede? Ah, this is interesting, because, you know, John Edwards is, I can tell you right now, is fuming. I was with Jesse Jackson, and, and Edwards is fuming. Um, it was because it was breaking trust with black people whose votes, again, were flushed out in Ohio. And um, the, the answer is that if you don't concede, you end up, I mean, look at Al Gore's worth about, what, half a billion dollars right mm-hmm. now? Yeah. And got the Nobel Peace Prize, and, you know, with, uh, for, as, as one scientist who got it with him said, I didn't know you got uh, the Nobel Prize for public relations. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he got, he did okay. Right. You won't do okay if you oh, if you're a spoiled raise sport. your voice. I see. You don't do okay at all. You are, con- you're a pariah. For exposing the system, if you don't so you play, know, if you don't like, play, it's just like you know, darkness at noon. It's just like the Stalinists who, you know, praised, you know, went to their execution while praising Stalin, mm-hmm. you know, to protect the party. That's what they're doing. Well, so there's all these ways. You just uh, obviously scrubbing, and then this, uh, you know, interstate, um, which is Project, outrageous. Yeah. So, is there any federal organization, especially under Obama? Um, maybe. Why am I saying especially? I keep doing that all the time too. <laughs> you know, it's I should have learned long ago, and I did, but I keep saying it. Um, some lasting sort of liberal ghost inside me. Uh, so, is, what about the Federal Elections Commission? Is that is that just a bunch of hacks too? Are they? Who is oh, in charge? Worse. So there's nobody. Uh, the, uh, let's put it this way. Um, and, and, and by the way, this is Greg Palace. And you can read this information at gregpalace.com. I'm putting a commercial just so people can get the information. Yeah, Greg, um, Greg yeah. Palace, P A L A S T, Greg, G R G G R E G P A L A S T dot com. And you should check this out and subscribe to this place. Anyhow, yeah, go ahead. Cause, yeah, because yeah, we'll uh, keep you informed, and, and there'll, there'll be lots of segments of the film that we'll be putting out for free, et cetera. Um, oh, I've just been told we only have about two minutes. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So no, the the federal government's been uh, horrific. In fact, the Federal Elections Commission is run by a re- Obama allowed it to be taken over by this right wing racist. I'm, I don't, and I say that very carefully, racist Republican hack who is actually doing his utmost to use the Federal Commission to block 
uh, minority voters from voting. I kid you not. Even hmm. the New York Times had a front page article, which is unusual. Um, so don't look to the feds for help. What you do have to do is look to you know activist organizations, not the parties or the feds or anyone. Mm-hmm. And that's you know it's the way Martin Luther King did it the first in the first case. You got to march over the bridge. You know? So this is this is all set up to happen, and um, mm-hmm. people have to intervene uh, at this point and from now on before the election happens, right? And we can. They they'll steal about six million votes. They can't steal all the votes all the time, man. Six million votes. That's what Ken, Bobby Kennedy and I works with me you know, calculate. Yeah, oh, amazing. All right. Well, so uh, you know, this is like Barry. What, is it, what did Barry Goldwater said? The price of liberty is eternal vigilance, or something. I mean, you know, he was wrong about everything else. We got that one right. Yeah. Yeah. All we right. got to watch out for him. <laughs> <laughs> and also said that uh, New York should be uh, set adrift in the Atlantic Ocean, but uh, you know, isn't it? Uh, I thought it was Brooklyn. It's around Brooklyn. All right, Greg Palace, thank you very much. Uh, check out this latest article about voter purging and how it's a national threat. And check out all his other articles at gregpalace.com. And once again, thanks again for doing this and uh, for being on the show. Thanks, Mike. Anytime. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye, Greg. Okay, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week, and uh, we're going to uh, talk about, uh, it looks like uh, the whole world, and especially the United States, is overcome by crime, overwhelmed by tidal waves of crime. But there are some people who investigated this and, and have reported that there is less crime now than there used to be even a couple of years ago or 10 or 20 years ago. It just appears as if there's more. But we'll see whether uh, there's uh, real truth to that or not. Thanks. Jesus, my 
Devil 